This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Today's show is brought to you by Viome. Find out what your microbiome is telling you. Go to the link in the show notes, use the code Aegist, save $30 on all their products. Welcome to episode 98 of the SuperAge podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on August the 24th, 2022. It is another beautiful day in the mountains of Utah, and I have to say it's been raining this summer, like a couple days every week. Last summer, it didn't rain at all, really, from maybe April till October, but it's been raining a lot, which means that the hills here, the mountains, which are normally a little bit on the brown side, are sort of like the hills of Ireland. They're bright green, which is magical. I love that. And this week, I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of mentoring. And mentoring is really great. I, I, did, I mean, I'm hoping the people on the other end of the call, the mentee, get something out of it. You know, we always try for that. But I get a ton out of it because, you know, it's sometimes only by talking about what you know do you realize how much you know and how much valuable information you can transfer to another person. But you only get that opportunity to say that stuff when you're involved in something like this, you know, where, where someone who's younger comes to you and says like, Hey, you know, how do I handle X, Y, Z? And you say, well, okay, well, this is what you do. And it feels great. So big plug for mentoring. Some of these mentoring things, you know, can be more formal. That's fine. Sometimes they're just casual. Somebody's, you know, friend of a friend. What do I do? Um, whatever. It's all great. Uh, really highly encourage that sort of thing helps with a sense of purpose, usefulness, all those sort of things that are going to help us live longer, healthier, and happier. So get somebody who can use your mentoring. We had a question come in through social media about our broadcast last week with the audiologist talking about hearing and hearing loss and its implications for brain health. And the question was, what about if someone has um, hearing loss from birth or from a very early age. What's the data on that? And the answer to that is there isn't much data on that. Most of the data on early onset Alzheimer's dementia has to do with people who had hearing loss later in life. So um, we don't really have any information on that, but it seems obvious that it's good to take care of your hearing at whatever age. This week on the show, I am so happy to bring to everyone, Dr. Richard Davidson. And I'm not often intimidated by people, but um, Dr. Davidson is an amazing guy. He's, you know, BFF with the Dalai Lama, among other very famous people. Uh, he's an expert on the mind, on meditation. And, you know, as he says, we have the capacity to choose what we focus on. And through that, we change our lives. Um, it, this is an amazing conversation. We've been trying to set this up for some time. And he's a very busy guy. I feel super lucky to have spoken to him. We're going to bring 
Dr. Richard Davidson on the show in just a moment. Today's show is brought to you by Viome with some very unique mRNA technology to get your gut back on track. Now, I just want to say a huge thank you and a note of appreciation to Viome for how they helped me with my gut. What some of you may not know, well, which I don't often talk about, is that over the last two or three years, I was in the ER a couple of times with gut issues. My gut's been a real problem, and I haven't really been able to figure out what it is, nor have any of my doctors. So I've done the usual, you know, parasite bacteria testing, food allergies, food sensitivities, changing of diet, on and on. Um, no results. And the reason was they weren't able to test for the things that Viome does. I took the Viome health intelligence test, and it's a combination of a stool test and a blood sample. You send it in. I got mine back in about two and a half weeks. And there's a series of recommendations, foods to eat, foods not to eat. And the foods not to eat, on my end anyway, there were about 10 of them, most of which had to do with causing my gut dysbiosis, which means like a dysregulation of the gut. Something's happening there that shouldn't be. And these were often caused by plant viruses. So for instance, with me, I have blueberry plant virus. So I have no problem with blueberries. Blueberries are great. What I have a problem with is the blueberry plant virus, which was helping this, you know, to amplify this dysbiosis in my gut. So by stopping eating things like blueberries, green beans, tomatoes, and a couple of other things, I was no longer feeding the plant virus that was in my gut. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. In, in three days, my gut was 50% better. I, I don't know any other way to have tested this, to have discovered this. This is a test that I, I think is just so important, and I ask all of my friends to do it. Gut health is so primary. Gut health equals brain health. Bad gut, you're going to have you know cognitive issues later in life. So please um, check these guys out. It's a really good thing. And just for the listeners of this podcast, in the show notes below, there's a link for Viome. Use the code AGIST and you'll save $30 off their health intelligence test. You know, it's, it's 2022. We don't have to guess anymore about our diets. Just a quick note on the sponsors for this program. We're, of course, very grateful for their support, which makes this podcast possible. But these are also products and brands that we support, that we personally use, and more than that, that have made an impact in our lives. We hope that you check them out and that you find the same positive impact that we have. Good morning, Richard. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm better knowing that I'm talking to you. I'll tell you. Um, I'm. We've had some illustrious people on this program, um, and I don't often get nervous, but I feel for some reason quite nervous talking to you this morning. Well, I hope uh, you will relax very soon. So. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, very much looking forward to this conversation. So you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. You have um, something called the Center for Healthy Minds. Um, what is that? So this was a center that uh, I inaugurated in 2009. Uh, in 2010, the Dalai Lama came out for the official inauguration of this center uh, our mission is to cultivate well-being and relieve suffering through a scientific understanding of the mind. 
And the center is an interdisciplinary research organization that is part of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, it includes faculty that range from humanities, contemplative scholarship, uh, Buddhist studies, for example, to hardcore neuroscience and biology uh, uh, with lots in between. Uh, and uh, uh, all of us uh, uh, are united in our efforts to study uh, the nature of human flourishing and how we can promote it. What is a healthy mind? Well, uh, a healthy mind is something that we're investigating. I don't think there is one unique formula for a healthy mind. Uh, but uh, what we can say is that uh, someone with a healthy mind is someone who is fully present uh, in what they're doing, is socially connected to others, uh, has insight into the nature of themselves and their own mind, uh, and is working with a sense of purpose that goes beyond themselves. Uh, those are uh, core ingredients of the healthy mind. Well, I guess now I have to ask you, where is my mind? Well, it's a good question to ask, and uh, it is actually uh, uh, one of the practices that we would recommend doing to cultivate uh, one or more of these key pillars of a healthy mind. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that the nature of that inquiry itself uh, is enormously valuable uh, in giving a person insight into uh, how her or his mind actually operates, particularly this um, narrative that we all have about ourselves. It is uh, natural and uh, appropriate for humans to have this narrative about themselves. And we can ask ourselves, um, where is our mind? Where is our self? Uh, uh, and by investigating that, uh, we can discover, I think, experientially, that um, uh, uh, it is uh, not as fixed as we might have believed in the first place. Uh, it is uh, not located uh, in any uh, one single place. It is uh, more distributed uh, and it is um, uh, more porous than we might have otherwise uh, considered. And so uh, the process of uh, investigation, particularly with a sense of curiosity about what is this that we call our mind, uh, is something that can really be enormously helpful. So my mind is not my brain. Something. Well, some... Some people would say it is. We do not. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, if you look on the website of the MIT Department of Brain and Cognitive Science, which is a wonderful department, I have many friends in that department, uh, and there are a lot of incredibly smart people doing really cool things. Um, but they say somewhere on their website that the mind is what the brain does. Uh, and um, we think that's a, um, a grave uh, um, uh, 
we can say it's a grave mistake. It's a uh, it's short sighted. It's a premature closing of our accounts uh, with reality. Uh, to paraphrase Shakespeare, um, uh, so um, even if we take uh, an, a totally materialistic view uh, consistent with modern science, we know that there are 200 million neurons in the gut, uh, and the gut plays a really important role in modulating our brain. And so to say the mind is only in the brain is ridiculous. Uh, it just flies in the face of uh, so much empirical knowledge at this point in time. So uh, uh, we don't think that's a very useful way to think. You used um, the word porous a few minutes ago and um, talking about the idea that thinking and identity are perhaps not as fixed. And I've, and, and I've been fascinated with this idea of how our greatest limitations is our, is our lack of imagination. In other words, the sort of like, we, we think we are this, therefore we are this, and, and we cannot be anything other than this. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it's hugely important, uh, the issue that you're naming. And this is one of the four key pillars of well-being that we describe. It would be what we would call insight. Uh, and we're talking about here insight into the nature uh, of this narrative. And we know that our beliefs uh, about ourselves in the world, our expectations, literally literally shape uh, our experience of the world. Uh, and there's hard-nosed neuroscientific evidence to suggest this. Uh, and so uh, when we uh, fail to recognize that our beliefs and expectations are shaping our attention and our perception of the world in this way, uh, we are slaves to our beliefs and expectations. Um, many people don't even recognize that they're having beliefs and expectations. They're going on under the hood, so to speak. Um, uh, and so taking this on uh, as an investigation to, to imagine what it might be like uh, if we had a different set of beliefs and expectations, or imagine uh, one of the practices we often do is imagine someone who is uh, a person you would consider to be especially wise uh, and uh, insightful, and imagine how they would look at a situation uh, that you are stuck in differently from the way you're looking at it. Just uh, imagine what it would be like from their perspective. Uh, exercises of that sort help to shake us out of the fixedness that is imposed by our beliefs and expectations and loosen the grip that these might have on our perceptions of the world. Talk to me a little bit about during the practice of meditation, what are the effects on, on the brain? How does the brain change? Well, first, um, I often say that meditation is like sports. There are many, many, oh, many varieties. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, they each will have differing effects. Mm. Uh, and so uh, there is no one signature for meditation on the brain. Uh, and we know enough at this point to say with confidence 
the different forms of meditation will produce different effects. Uh, and so that's the first really important thing to say. And so um, uh, it, it would depend on what form of meditation we're talking about. Um, uh, and uh, uh, just to give two examples, we know that uh, simple mindfulness meditation practices produce effects on the brain that involve our um, circuits important for regulating attention, uh, whereas uh, uh, practices that involve cultivating compassion uh, have impact on circuits in the brain that are important for uh, emotion and for perspective taking. So they affect completely different parts of the brain. Absolutely. Simplistic question on my part. Um, I guess um, many, some time ago, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, I had the opportunity to sit with, um, I studied with some of the Zen people in um, outside of New York. And it was all about, um, you know, you would try and count and not think. Um, and about as far as I could get with is like number two. <laughs> and then I'd have to start again. Um, and I found that that, had a it, it was initially really really hard um but then something sort of you know like they, they have a they have an event in central park called change your mind and it's about exactly that like changing your the, the way your mind works um and i and i sort of found that happening what what was happening to me there yeah well it's a that's a really good example and an important question and in many ways, we think of it as a shift from a mode of doing to a mode of being uh, um, and uh, uh, to simply attend without trying to do anything, without uh, trying to change anything, without trying to fix anything, but simply to pay attention. Um, uh, and uh, 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 it is a very common experience for people to report being very distracted. So if you have them attend to breathing, for example, and do um, uh, a process similar to what you're describing, say counting the breaths, um, many people will have a hard time uh, counting more than five or 10 breaths consecutively before their mind begins to wander. And uh, this is simply... Uh, uh, indicative of the chaotic nature of our minds uh, and the fact that most people don't spend much time uh, attending to their mind. Uh, we're so pulled, our attention, we can say, is so often captured by uh, stimuli in our environment, compelling media that we're being barraged with continuously uh, that literally captures our attention. And so uh, we are quite, um, uh, uh, as a culture, I think, impoverished in our capacity to uh, actually um, inspect uh, our own minds. Uh, and so um, the other issue that you mentioned is thinking. Uh, and here there's the different styles of meditation approach this very differently. And um, one of the uh, important um, uh, convictions that I have is that thinking is actually what 
human minds and brains do. Uh, uh, we're very well equipped to think. And the goal of meditation is not to stop thinking. Um, it's to stop getting lost. Uh, uh, and it's different than, than thinking. Uh, and so um, uh, if you find that your mind is thinking, uh, you can simply pay attention to the thinking uh, and um, uh, uh, and bring that into focus. Uh, uh, what is problematic is when we go on automatic pilot, so to speak, and we really become lost. Uh, and one of the examples that I frequently give of this is um, that many of us, I think, have had the experience of reading a book where we might be reading each word on a page, and we might go one page, we might go two pages, and after a few minutes, we realize that we have no idea what we've just read. Our minds are just somewhere else. So we were actually reading each individual word, but we were not weaving them together in the process of reading. Our minds were elsewhere. And that's an example of not knowing what our minds are doing, which is quite common. And one of the skills that's cultivated in certain forms of meditation is the skill of what scientists call meta-awareness. Meta-awareness is the capacity to know what our minds are doing. And um, that may sound strange to some viewers, but uh, I think when you reflect on uh, the reading example, or sometimes you may be driving uh, along a familiar route, uh, and you're really supposed to go somewhere else, but you make a turn that was just automatic um, based on habitual behavior. And it's, you know, that's another example of not knowing what our minds are doing. Uh, and cultivating meta-awareness is so important for all other forms of transformation, because we can't transform our mind unless we know uh, what our minds are actually doing. And this is the um, the miracle of meta-awareness. I know some people, um, they all seem to be men, who are afraid of meditation. They, they, they fear doing it, um, which I, I don't know. They don't seem like wilting flowers to me, these people, but they, they are afraid of this thing. And I don't, do you come across that? Yeah, we do come across that. And I think that um, one, at least, um, uh, component of the fear is that uh, when you begin to actually open up this black box of our mind, begin to inspect it and interrogate it, um, it could be terrifying uh, to see what's there because it's so friggin' chaotic for many people. Uh, and uh, when uh, and and we actually have documented this empirically in scientific research. So for beginning meditators, when they first begin to pay attention to their mind, they actually become, they report increased anxiety. Um, and uh, we think that that's quite normative. And we don't think it's an actual increase in anxiety. What we think is happening is that uh, they're simply paying more attention to what's going on in their mind. Uh, and uh, their mind is filled with all kinds of uh, disturbing thoughts, or at least the, the thoughts that are not controllable, which itself is disturbing. Uh, and so that is associated with anxiety. Uh, but it's 
quite um, appropriate. It's a healthy sign um, for them to get a little anxious um, because uh, it means that what they're doing is actually working. Um, they're becoming more familiar with their mind. Is this where the benefit of having um, a meditation teacher versus a meditation app would come in? Yes. Uh, you know, certain apps are better than others in helping to guide people, but uh, and we think they could be very useful. But yes, I think it, having a teacher uh, is extremely important to, to guide us and to help us navigate uh, the kinds of challenges that will inevitably arise uh, in any person's practice. So you've spent some time with the Dalai Lama. Um, I got to ask you, what's that like? Uh, it's wonderful. I feel blessed and uh, honored uh, to have had all the opportunities I've had before COVID. I typically would see him uh, three or four times a year. Uh, and uh, that's been going on for uh, about 25 years, uh, actually almost 30 years now. Um, and and I, in October, I'll be going back to India for the first time since COVID. Uh, and um, we'll be seeing him again. Uh, so um, uh, uh, he is someone that uh, I find I learn from simply being in his presence uh, through his demeanor. Uh, 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 and uh, he is someone that um, exudes uh compassion in a way that is just implicit in his uh, in the way he interacts with people so to give one concrete example the very first time i met him in 1992 uh i was ushered into a room and told to please sit and wait uh and uh then um uh, and i was with three other people um and uh uh this was in 1992 many years ago and I nearly had a panic attack in this in this waiting room, and I, I, you know, I'm not someone who is prone to super high anxiety. I would consider myself quite average in terms of my anxiety level. You know, not very low anxious and not very high anxious. Um, but I nearly had a panic attack. I've never had a panic attack in my life, but I found my I had these heart palpitations. And I could not envision what the first words would be uh, when I was with His Holiness. And also, I began to have all this self-doubt. Who am I to waste the time of the Dalai Lama? Um, and so, and then all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, please follow me. And I was taken into the next room. And then three seconds later, the Dalai Lama appears. And within 15 seconds, all of my anxiety was just completely and totally gone. I mean, not only was it gone, but I felt like this was the most secure, safe place on the planet that I could be. And I felt um, more comfortable uh, than I think I've ever felt in my life, uh, uh, right in that moment. Uh, and this was maybe 15 seconds into uh, my first meeting with him. And it just, you know, the anxiety completely was just vanished. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that's the kind of experience that many people have reported uh, in his presence. 
And um, uh, so it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Wow. <laughs> um, so having known His Holiness for a long time, what have you learned? Well, uh, I've learned a lot from just seeing him um, uh, uh, in action, so to speak. Um, you know, I can go on for a long time about stories, uh, um, but I, you know, one of the things that I study as a scientist is emotion, um, and I've studied emotion for my entire professional career. And as a, uh, you know, I consider myself a lifelong student of emotion. Uh, and as a student of emotion, it's um, for me been especially instructive to look at the emotion of His Holiness. Um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has the greatest dynamic range of emotion of any human being I've ever met um, within uh, a given unit of time. And what I mean by, by that is that he can go, and I've seen this personally, he can go from crying uh, after he is, for example, told a story about a tragedy uh, where people are tortured or killed, um, uh, you know, with visible tears in his eyes. And then the next moment, he may notice something funny and he'll burst out laughing. Uh, and, you know, we see this transition from crying to laughter in infants. Um, but as adults, we've all, for the most part, lost that capacity. Well, His Holiness has that capacity. Uh, and I've seen it up close many times. Um, and uh, what that teaches me is that for him, there's no lingering of emotion. Emotion is expressed in a context-appropriate way. So it is expressed where it's relevant for the context, and then it's gone. Uh, it's just completely dissipated. Uh, uh, and uh, that is quite extraordinary. And to me, is the very um, definition of resilience. Resilience is the capacity to recover um, quickly, uh, particularly from adversity. And, um, uh, and you see that in His Holiness in spades. Uh, uh, and so that's one of the very powerful things that I've learned from him. And I'll mention one other one, and that is His Holiness makes absolutely no distinction in how he treats people based on their status. Um, every human being is a human being, and that is what counts. Uh, and I've seen him uh, 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 interact with janitorial staff, with security staff, with kitchen staff, in the same way he interacts with world-renowned people. Um, absolutely no distinction, zero. Um, uh, and so uh, 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 every human being deserves the same respect regard, warmth, and compassion. Amazing. Um, I love your stories. <laughs> that was great. Uh, one of the things that um, I seem to have gotten from meditation, and I'm, I'm 
very much of a novice meditator, is this idea of a little bit of a space between stimulus and response. Something happens, it, I, I guess, in my in my worst moments, um, something doesn't even need to happen. I can anticipate something happening. I'm already reacting to it. What do, What is it that, you know, the calming of the mind and the observing of this, um, what's that doing? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, and I think that your insight is absolutely right on. Uh, and what it's doing in the brain um, is something that we've learned, I would say, a fair amount about particularly over the last decade. So there is a network in the brain um, that we call the salience network. And the salience network is um, really important for uh, um, noticing things that are important. Um, it, it's really um, labeling salient events and stimuli. Um, uh, uh, and um we can be really hijacked, if you will, by the salience network. Um, uh, and so when a salient stimulus occurs in our environment, it can just trigger a response that's very automatic. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of our behavior is, is of that nature, um, where salient stimuli occur. And the salience, by the way, is often acquired. That is, we learn that certain things are salient. Um, they're not, uh, um, uh, they're not uh, what we would call primary reinforcers in the language of uh, psychology or neuroscience, but they're secondary. They, they take on significance because of culture or through um, other kinds of learning. Um, so, uh, one of the things that meditation does is to break the connection between the salience network and other networks in the brain so that these other networks are not immediately hijacked by what might be salient. Uh, there is, uh, as you describe it, there's a space um, and there's an opportunity to decide how to respond rather than having an automatic response that's triggered. Um, uh, and so this is really important and gives us the freedom uh, to uh, uh, more wisely choose uh, how we might respond. And, you know, there are certain kinds of cases that are um, particularly extreme that really uh, illustrate this clearly. Uh, and one such case is in the case of addiction, uh, where... Um, there are cues that are associated with uh, addiction, and it could be a drug addiction, but it could be other kinds of addiction too. Um, uh, and those cues uh, are powerful, uh, and they elicit what we might think of as an urge um, uh, to, to engage in whatever that addictive behavior was. And um, uh, and. And most often when the cue occurs, uh, in many cases, the urge is even is not so conscious. It just immediately leads to the behavior in question. And one of the ways that meditation can help is by giving us this gap, this pause, so that we can notice the urge 
that provides uh, a signal to our mind that there is this compelling stimulus in our midst and gives us a little bit of leverage uh, to uh, to make a decision about how we wish to respond rather than having it capture us and be having uh, our, our actions be hijacked by this kind of stimulus. So one of the things this is bringing to mind for me is th- this idea of this sort of loop that we can get ourselves into, this sort of like stress, fear, um, sort of loop and, and, and how this can go on for long periods of time with really negative health consequences. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And so, um, you know, one of the, uh, um, interesting, uh, insights that is a key aspect of what you're describing is that one of the things that distinguishes humans from other species is that we have the capacity to engage in mental time travel. That is, we can reflect on the past and we can anticipate the future. Um, uh, And uh, 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 a lot of the stressors in our modern society that get us into trouble are not threats that are immediately present in our environment, but rather they're stuff that we create by our minds. They are worries that we have about some future intended um, uh, um, activity, or we ruminate about um, stuff that might have occurred in the past. Uh, And there's a a very famous neurobiologist at Stanford, a good friend of mine by the name of Robert Sapolsky, and he wrote this uh, really important book about stress um, a number of years ago. And the title of the book is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, And the reason why zebras don't get ulcers, of course, is because they don't do this mental time travel. Um, uh, They're really operating in the moment because they don't have this chunk of real estate in the front of their brain called the prefrontal cortex, which enables this kind of mental time travel. Uh, And so, um, you know, one of the things that's not really been studied, but I think most people would agree with this generalization, and that is that the prevalence of psychiatric disorders is much greater in humans than it is in any other species. Um, And the reason it's greater in humans is because of our prefrontal cortex. So this is a part of the brain that gives us tremendous freedom and uh, opportunity for choice, uh, uh, but it also gets us into trouble. Um, One of the things I tell people sometimes is that um, you have the choice about what you think about, (laughs) which isn't always true. Um, You know, sometimes we get hooked in those loops and we just can't get out of it. it. Um, Yeah. Exactly. Developing that choice. Right. Exactly. I think the, the, we all have the capacity to choose. Right. Right. Uh, And whether that capacity is actually realized, I think depends a lot on our upbringing, our experience and our training. 
So true. Um, have you, I'm, I'm curious about the work that you're doing, the scientific work that you're doing and how is it, what are the metrics? You know, there's, um, I saw something on your site that I read about, um, uh, learning to measure well-being, like mental well-being. How, I mean, like I can measure my heart rate. I can measure how much I weigh. How, what's the metric you're using to measure my well-being? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and we spend a lot of time on that question. And, you know, the, it, it's a complex answer because um, uh, well-being is a complicated construct that needs to be um, uh, decomposed, if you will, into the more elementary constituents of which it's comprised. Uh, for example, a psychologist would never talk about measuring cognition. They would talk about measuring specific features of cognition. So we can measure your, your short-term memory uh, or your long-term memory, uh, or uh, we can measure your um, perception of objects or perception of faces. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't talk about getting a measure of cognition uh, because that's too, it, cognition is much too complex and differentiated. We want to measure specific features of cognition. And in the same way, you want to measure specific aspects of well-being. Now, having said this, it is true that there are uh, questionnaire measures that are said to be more global measures. There's, uh, you know, the, the under the auspices of the United Nations, uh, every year for, I think, the last seven or eight years, uh, there is a world happiness report. Uh, uh, and it reports on the happiness of, you know, roughly 150 nations uh, across the world. And um, this uh, um, report is based on uh, an extremely coarse measure. In fact, it's a single item, uh, and it asks people on average, uh, how satisfied are you with your life? Um, uh, and it's on a 10-point scale, uh, a ladder scale, and that's the measure of happiness or well-being that is used for the World Happiness Report. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we think we could do better, and we think it's going to matter because uh, we know that if you ask people that question, how satisfied are you with your life in general, if you ask them on a sunny day versus a rainy day, they'll give you two different answers. And that makes no sense given the question. Um, uh, and so we know that there are all these contextual influences that, um, uh, that bias reporting uh, in response to those kind of questions. So we've been quite obsessed with how we can develop more robust measures of well-being and measures that can be easily scalable. Um, so we've been developing measures that we're putting on a smartphone. Um, a very large fraction of the world's population has phones uh, these days. Uh, and so we believe that these that these were questions that will be able to be asked of a much larger um, percentage of the population rather than uh, doing it from limited sampling. Uh, and we'll be able to ask much more differentiated uh, and granular 
um, uh, we'll, we'll be able to gather much more differentiating granular information from having different measures of well-being. So, um, you know, I know that's a very general answer, but let me just say one final thing, and that is that we have this framework for understanding the key um, components of well-being or the key pillars, and we have named four key pillars of well-being. The first we call awareness, which is our capacity to regulate our attention and also our capacity for self-awareness. The second is connection. And connection is about qualities that are important for healthy social relationships, qualities like appreciation and gratitude, kindness, empathy, compassion, all are part of connection. The third pillar is insight. And I talked a little bit about insight earlier, and this is um, self-knowledge, literally knowledge of the narrative uh, that we carry around about ourselves and um, a deep experiential understanding of how this narrative shapes our perception of the world. And finally, the last pillar of well-being is purpose. Um, and purpose is about uh, our um, sense of direction in life. And, and here, it's not so much about finding something purposeful to do, but rather, how can we connect meaning and purpose to our ordinary activities of daily living? Can taking out the garbage be directly connected to your sense of purpose? Um, and of course it can be, um, but again, it requires uh, some reframing. So um, those are our four key pillars of well-being, and we are, we've developed measures of each of these four pillars um, because we believe that having this kind of differentiated information is going to be super important because some people are really um, strong in one or another or a few of these measures, but not so strong in, in one of them. And so this would give us a clue about how um, we can more individually um, work with people and uh, offer them strategies that may be most relevant to uh, their specific challenges. And have you collected enough data on this so that is there a correlation between, you know, um, an overall well-being score and someone's, you know, say something you'd go to a doctor and say, like, where do I stand in my overall health score? Like, is there a connection between these two? Between health score and well-being? I just made that between... up. I don't even know okay. that there is such a thing as a health score. But... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you mean is there a connection between um, well-being and other uh, other kinds of outcomes? Yeah, is that so what if you're I, it, 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 yeah, pretty much. So um, the connection between well-being and health outcome, longevity, health yeah. span, things like that. Okay, so so um, yeah, I'll answer that in a detailed way in a moment. But let me just say that there are two big buckets of measures that are important to consider. One we can call proximal measures of well-being itself. So I can measure a person's awareness, connection, insight, and purpose using both self-report and behavioral measures. Um, those are proximal measures of well-being. But then there are distal measures, or we can think of as distal outcomes, that well-being will impact. So we know that um, 
uh, that well-being is in people who have higher report higher levels of well-being are actually physically healthier. Uh, we know uh, if you there is a study that was published a few years ago that took the data on national rankings of happiness and well-being and looked at it in relation to longevity or life expectancy in those countries. And there's a very, very tight relationship between the life expectancy in a country and the average level of well-being in that country, um, if you look across 151 nations. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, there, so so the answer is yes, there are those really important um, distal outcomes. And we are especially interested in opportunities where we can measure both proximal and distal outcomes. And we're doing a lot of that. So, for example, in the area of education, um, we are uh, doing work where we're training teachers' well-being, and we're looking at outcomes in the kids that they teach. And a, a distal outcome may be um, the likelihood that they'll graduate from high school on time, uh, or their grade point average, uh, or their attendance records, their disciplinary records. All of those are distal outcomes that are actually correlated with, um, in this case, not just the students' well-being, but having uh, teachers that exemplify high levels of well-being in the classroom. I love this. I think I think that's really great. Um, some some it's it's a strange thing you, that I I find that people in like in my world, if I if I say okay, you know exercise, food, you know, there's things that you should probably do. They're, they're sort of doing um, math in their heads. Like we all do this math in our heads about how much effort ver will get me what outcome and what are the, what is the certainty that this outcome will happen? And that, that's sort of how I decide, do I go to the gym or not? Um, and what you're telling me is the, you know, this, this um, relationship causal or not between the with these outcomes of happiness I, and i love that well we know that, that there's there's quite a bit of work that took the correlational data as a starting point and actually did the proper experiments to establish causal relations so um we have enough data now i believe to um really support the view that it is indeed causal uh now it doesn't mean that it's it just goes one way. I believe the arrows go both ways. But we do know that the arrow from well-being to um, other distal outcomes, including uh, improved health outcomes, is causal. Brilliant. Um, if um, for those folks out there who have trouble with things like meditation and mindfulness and some of the things we've been discussing, what would you suggest as a course of action for them? Well, uh, a few things, and thank you for that question because it's really an important one. Um, a few things. First of all, uh, I think it's really important for people to begin very, very modestly um, because it's not easy for most people to establish a kind of new habit or practice. Um, uh, and so... Uh, uh, as a general rule of thumb, uh, it's really important to start modestly. And uh, also to think about this um, uh, uh, in a 
kind of public health context. So uh, one of the things that I'm fond of reminding people is that when human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And I'm sure every viewer of this or listener um, brushes their teeth. Uh, and this is not part of our genome. Uh, this is something that humans have figured out how to do. And we do it because it's important for our personal physical hygiene. Uh, and what we're talking about is something important for a person's mental hygiene, but also, uh, as we've just been discussing, the mental hygiene actually has beneficial consequences for our physical states as well. And so uh, the scientific research shows that if we spent even as short a time as we spend brushing our teeth, nourishing our mind, this world would really be a different place. Uh, and I think most people, um, with the exception of maybe dentists, um, would agree uh, that their mind is really more important than their teeth. Uh, and, uh, and yet we don't treat our minds with the same respect uh, and the same care as we do our teeth. And so it really, it, this, the research shows it doesn't take much to get these circuits in the mind and the brain going. Uh, the key is consistency and regularity of practice. And so um, uh, uh, doing something every single day is really important. So what's the minimum amount of time that a listener can do every day, say, for the next 30 days? If it's one minute, that's great. Let's do one minute a day. But do it every day for 30 days. And then check in and see how you're doing. Um, so we have developed an app in our um, center called the Healthy Minds Program. It is totally freely available. Uh, there's absolutely no paywall. Um, and uh, it has been named by the New York Times Wirecutter as one of the three best meditation apps for 2022. Uh, and ours is the only one that's free and the only one that's actually evidence-based and scientifically grounded. Uh, and so, uh, and it has all of this stuff on it and anyone can download it anywhere in the world. Um, right now, unfortunately, it's only available in English, but for those um, English speakers, uh, I would encourage you to please try it. it. Won't cost you a penny, as I said, and um, it will provide this kind of guidance. I love that. And I, I from personally, it took me, I am such a slow learner. Um, you, it's just, uh, Richard, it took me 10 years, maybe 15 years of trying to do this. And I eventually, um, somebody told me, and I went to all these plate, you know, the Zen, all these stuff. I just like very noisy mind. Um, <laughs> well, I eventually often, did an app. Yeah. We um, often encourage people to not fight with their minds. Right. Uh, and uh, rather make friends with your mind. Uh, and so when your mind is being chaotic, oh, there's, you know, that's my monkey mind. Those are my thoughts. Uh, and um, embrace them. Don't mm. push them away. Uh, and uh, really start very, very modestly. And, you know, I think if people do a couple of minutes a day, uh, most people report that they can do that. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they can gradually, step by step, 
increase it as they experience some benefit. Brilliant. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave people with today? Yeah, uh, I there is, and that is um, uh, we are facing multiple crises on the planet today. Uh, uh, there is the crisis of climate change. There is the crisis of uh, increased um, nationalism and divisiveness uh, and uh, um, polarization that we find not only in the United States, but in many other countries of the world. And, um, you know, I think many people, uh, and also the pandemic has exacerbated um, symptoms of depression and anxiety in virtually every country in which this has been investigated. Uh, and so it's a pretty challenging time. And um, when Martin Luther King gave his famous speech in Washington in 1963, uh, during the height of the civil rights movement, then the title was not I Have a Nightmare, but having a dream about a different way of living is, I think, really important. Human beings are born to flourish. We have all of the capability to lead a happy, meaningful, uh, and engaged life. Uh, we come into the world with those capacities. They need to be nourished in order for them to be expressed. Uh, and so uh, my um, parting thoughts uh, are to think of this as a really urgent public health need, something that will help to recalibrate the trajectory that we are on. And with just a few minutes a day, if everyone does her or his part, we really can change the world together. I love that. Um, I love your spirit. And um, I, I just want to, again, thank you so much for your generous time today. And um, love your stories, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Thank you. Well, happy really to great. be here, and uh, I hope this could be of some benefit. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the show today with Dr. Richard Davidson. Um, we'll put some links to his books down in the show notes and to the Center for Healthy Minds. You know, I just love the message that we, of course, have agency over our health, over our behavior, you know, what we eat, what we do, how active we are, but we also have agency over our minds. Um, we have the capacity to choose what we focus on, and um, that's a very powerful statement. If you enjoyed the show today with Dr. Davidson, please share it with your friends. This is how we grow. And you, of course, have the option to leave us up to a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. You can also leave a comment. We love those. And if you'd like to contact me directly, david at superage.com. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking about the gut biome, the oral biome, how they relate, how to investigate them, and the consequences for not taking care of them. So that's a good one. Make sure you're here for that. Everyone, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful rest of the week. I hope your summer's going great, and we'll see you next week. Take care now.